0: This morning I want to return back to the book of 1 Chronicles. It's a book we don't generally read on our own. Maybe you're the exception. That would be a good thing. Last week we looked at chapter 17. We're going backwards. We're going to chapter 16. Seems to be a lot of my life going backwards. <laughs> we started at 17. We're going back to verse six, chapter 16. And I want to address the matter of joy once again. You know, it's the new year. There's a lot of people looking forward to this year. There's a lot of um, people wondering what this year will bring. We think likewise every year. 22 uh, may have had some significant surprises in our lives. I'm sure that 2023 will as well. Whatever the case, I know this. There's room and there's time. There's a place. There's reason for joy Uh, in everybody's heart here. There's room and there's a need for joy as well. But it does seem that joy is something that comes and goes. Better yet, happiness is something that comes and goes for so many people. Um, At times we are joyful. And then we discover that the events of life just chip away at our joy. Uh, You turn on the radio, for example, and you listen to the news and what happens? Your joy just evaporates. You, um, you take a measure of the relationships, the important relationships in your life, and you say they're, they're faltering, they're failing. They're not what they should be, and, and you begin to lose your joy. Uh, sometimes we look at our children, and what happens? We lose our joy. Sometimes we look at our parents, and what happens? We are frustrated, and we lose our joy. We look at our bodies and we say, oh, I lost my joy. (laughs) Often we go to school or we go to work and as we grab the door, we're about to open the door, we sigh, take a deep breath and we say, here we go, the daily grind yet again. And there's no joy, there's no joy. And we look at the empty room, wherever it may be, at home. You look and say, wow, it should be fuller. It shouldn't be so empty, and you lose your joy. You look at your bank account, and you say, wow, it should be fuller, and you lose your joy. And of course, there are things we could do in order to remedy some of those problems. For example, we could turn off the news or take it in smaller doses and instead use that extra time to work on those relationships that we see are failing. We could join the YMCA. Uh, We could look for another job. We could redo our budget so that it would be more realistic and more manageable. But nonetheless, no matter what the case is, you're always going to find joy challenges. Your day, your week, your year are going to be filled with opportunities by which you will want to be joy, but circumstances are going to be chipping away at your joy. And that's the reality of life. And your circumstances are no different than anybody else's. Of course, the specifics may change, the faces change, but uh, the issues that you face are no different than anybody else's. In fact, the Book of Job, chapter five or seven, is very accurate when it reads that man is born to trouble, as certainly as sparks fly upward. It's the reality. It's not exactly optimistic, but it is real, isn't it? You know this to be your experience. But that doesn't mean that we cannot be joy-filled people. Neither are our problems an excuse to be joyless. You see, in Christ, we have the opportunity to be persistently joy-filled. In fact, the Christian never has the right to say, well, if you only knew my situation, you wouldn't be joyful either. And that's not a right that's given to us as people who know Christ. What is the root of the problem? What is it that makes our joy fluctuate? One day we are joy-filled, the next day we are run down, and some of us even despairing. What makes our joy fly away? Well, here's the root of the problem. Well, better yet, here's what the root of the problem is not. Let me suggest to you what much of the world says is the root of the problem. There, there is, and I'm sure you know this, there is a secular push to blame man for everything. For everything. For everything. Man is the root of all evil. It's not new. It's not new. Uh, just before my wife was born back in 1968, notice how I'm very careful as to what I'm saying. <laughs> before she was born, biologist from Stanford University, Paul Ehrlich, wrote a book in which he said that human beings are the threat to this world. And he said back in 1968, this than 50 years ago, He said that at this rate soon, this world is going to be so impoverished and starving because there's no way we could sustain the world the way it is. Back then, in 68, the population of the world was three and a half billion people. Today, we are eight and a half, or just over eight billion people. Worldwide population, eight billion plus And today, this earth is far wealthier. There's more wealth in this world than ever before in history. And there are fewer starving populations today than there was back in 1968. It's that simple. So he was wrong. And yet, what he says, in fact, he was just interviewed on one of the major stations a week or two ago. And he's still saying the same stuff. And they're agreeing with him. But there is, you'll notice, an anti-human sentiment that continues to grow. A prediction that we are going to kill nature. Who? Man is. That humanity is not sustainable. And that's why in China, for example, you had the forced sterilization policy. Uh, one, One family, one child policy. Forced sterilization, even forced abortions. They're not alone. Why? Because they said overpopulation will be the cause of a a massive bout of death. Simply because there's just too many people in this world. Uh, We do have today a culture of death that seems to never be satisfied. It's a culture of death that sees human reproduction as a pestilence. An enemy of mankind. Human reproduction as an enemy of mankind. So what do we do? We kill them one at a time. I can't tell you how important those little baby bottles are. It really goes a long way in helping save lives in our county. A culture of death that says a man is responsible for global warming. And listen, I'm not saying that the climate has not changed. I'm certainly not the guy you want to talk to about it, though. I know very little bit about it. And what I know, some people disagree. There, are, there is climate change. What the causes, I don't know. But I do know this, that man is being blamed for the global warming, which by some estimations will cause the death or the end of the world in 12 years or less. <laughs> I'll be 70 years old. That's young today, isn't it? Some of you are saying no. Yes, it is. Please tell me it is. <laughs> Just FYI, in regards to polar bears, where is he going, huh? You're thinking, I thought this was about First Chronicles. (laughs) Maybe you saw five years ago, National Geographic put out a video, which by the way is the most watched National Geographic video. Five years ago of a starving polar bear, it was a very sickly, scrawny uh, polar bear that could barely walk. And this polar bear is not walking on ice. He's walking on dry brown dirt. And he's scrounging for food. You can look it up. And eventually he does find a little food. He finds this carcass in this rusty old oil uh, barrel. And he pulls out the carcass and he eats it. And and the suggestion was that we are killing off the polar bears. Global warming is killing off the polar bears. Well, just so you know, a couple years later, the person who... I actually came up with a video, admitted, we have no idea as to why that polar bear was so sickly. It could have been that it was just old, or that it had a degenerative disease, and that it was not starving. Well, here's some information for you. The population of polar bears today is roughly five times what it was in the 1950s, and three to four times what it was in the 70s and 80s. In fact, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the estimate, middle point, mid-estimation of how many polar bears we have today is 26,500, maybe as much as 31,000. That's backed up by the State of the Polar Report issued back in 2018 by zoologist Susan J. Crockford, who says that the midpoint estimate in 2018 for the number of polar bears we have today roaming through our polar cat is 30,000. And that's why in Canada you're now allowed to hunt them again. You see, there is no extinction of the polar bear. But with this culture of death that says that man is responsible for the destruction of nature, this doomsday anti-human civilization impulse We begin to believe that that is the case and that we are killing ourselves off. Keep this in mind, my friends. This doomsday anti-human civilization impulse is a contradiction to what the Bible teaches. And this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that creation, the creation of man, is the apex of creation. Because we were created in the image of God. God. Whereas the world says that man is to blame, the Bible says no, man is the the apex of creation. In fact, the Bible says that we are called to care over this world and to rule with dominion over this world. And we are to fill it. I'll show it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 28. If it's not on a wall, it is in your Bible. Genesis two twenty-eight. it reads this way. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And for many people, the real issue there is twofold. One, fill it, and number two, have dominion over it. And yet that 's what God instructs mankind to do. I could say this: that you can be sure that when and if this planet becomes unsustainable, that God will be there to intervene, and he will have his way with his creation don 't be afraid. I could say this as well: one day this world will burn it will global warming will really be hot. <laughs> And that's when God destroys this world, which he promised, he said, he would. One day it will happen. But until then, God will be present. God will intervene in his creation. What then should we do until then? Well, this is my recommendation to all of us here. Until then, do what is right. Take care of God's creation. Do what is right and do what is good. And I would say live life. Live out your life and let life live. What is living? Allow it to live. In the process, trust in God. Now, as you well know, we did, when I say we, I'm referring to those who hold to the biblical worldview. We did win the 49-year-long abortion fight when Roe v. Wade was finally reversed. But now the battle is in the courts of the states. The, The states are now the ones fighting the battle. And some people would say, well, that's where it belongs. Well, that's where it is. And indeed, abortion clinics are closing down around the country, and the abortion numbers are significantly dropped. But what is rising is the use of abortion pills. You do not need a clinic for an abortion pill. In fact, just recently, a federal court said that a state cannot prevent the delivery of the abortion pill to a state where the abortion pill is outlawed. Because no one knows the intent of the woman who receives that abortion pill. We do not know whether or not she's going to use it illegally in that state. In other words, she may be pregnant in Kentucky, but she's going to drive to New Jersey to use it, and that would not be illegal, well, here's the issue. The, um, we did win the Roe v. Wade battle, and it cost us dearly. It cost the conservatives or the people with a Christian worldview, it cost them the Senate, but it was worth the cost. But this is for sure the proponents of a culture of death are not going to give in. It's going to continue, it's going to get hotter, it's going to get bigger. And the blame of man for all the woes of the world is going to continue. Human beings will be considered a blight. They'll continue to be considered a blight on this earth. And the solution then is to get rid of humans as long as it's not me. Or the ones I love. Get rid of humans, but don't touch me and my family. And that's the mentality of the day. Well, I said, what is the root of the problem? Well, I just told you what is not the root of the problem. Man is not the root of the problem. But here is the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not man, but it is the sin in man. The sin in man. And and let me draw this point to you in, in this way. When Christ came to this earth, what did he come as? As a man, as a human being. Another man in this populated world. But he did not come to get rid of mankind, rather he came to resolve the issue of sin in mankind. And one day, get this, God will repopulate the world, this new earth, new heaven and new earth that Scripture speak about. He will repopulate this world with sinless mankind. A mankind that won't sin, a mankind that won't be able to sin. My friends, the church will repopulate the new earth. And here you thought you were just coming to church this morning, right? No, you see, what we do here is a preparation for what will be in the future. God's people will repopulate this earth. Christianity is a high calling. A very high quality. Sin is a problem that begins at birth and it carries all the way down to the end of life. And the grievances that we face from day to day that take away our joy, those grievances stem not from man, but from the sinfulness in man. And life becomes joyless because we are constantly contending against the effects of sin. Sin. The effects of sin in other people, and the effects of sin in our own lives. But God loves to receive sinners. God loves to receive sinners. And First Chronicles, Chronicles 16 speaks exactly to that matter. Take a look at First Chronicles 16. That was a very long introduction, wasn't it? Some of you are thinking, wow, he's just getting started. I'm watching the clock too, don't worry. Chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles. Here we see a celebration by people who are sinners. And people who want to know God and please God and honor God. But there are people just like us, saved by grace. People who are broken in sin. Take a look at this celebration. Joe read it earlier to us. I don't think I could pronounce those names as he did, so I will not try. But you will recall, based on what we said last week and what Joe read this week, that it is the Ark of the Covenant that is being returned to Jerusalem, and now it is being placed in a tent. In a tent. And again, these are sinners who are celebrating God, people who live in a daily grind of life. But these people know God and now they are worshiping God because of what God has done on their behalf. And notice here in the text that they are very joyful. And in verse 1, it tells us that David pitched a tent. And when it says that David pitched a tent, it doesn't mean that King David was outside with a hammer and a stake and, you know, driving the stake into the ground, pitching the tent himself and saying, pull a little tighter on your side. No, that's not the case. It was King David, under his authority, this tent is erected. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to be stored in there. And likewise, it says King David made offerings. It doesn't mean King David did the priestly work, but rather under his authority, under his um, requirement, this is what occurred. And they made the offerings that are typical in these situations where God had explained to them what they ought to do. They followed the prescription of the law and God is worshipped. And indeed, verse 2, we see that it is just a tent. It's a rustic and primitive enclosure. But notice here that God is properly worshipped. It was not a pretty tent. It was a tent. But God was properly worshipped. I appreciate the words of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was a commentator of the scriptures, wrote several hundred years ago, but I love reading Matthew Henry still today. And Matthew Henry makes this point. I think it's worth reiterating. He notes here that David worshipped God in a mere tent. But he was devoted to God. Whereas his son Solomon will build a temple for God. A grand and beautiful temple. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to be there in the temple. And yet, though it was a beautiful and grand temple, Solomon detoured away from the worship of God. Solomon was the unfaithful one. And Henry makes this conclusion. The church's poorest times were its purest. Interesting, isn't it? The church's poorest times were its purest. There's truth there for us to consider and to chew on for a bit. Well, what we see here, beginning at verse 3, is that the celebration is very much indeed a, a, a civic celebration. But it's not just a civic celebration, it's a civic celebration under a theocracy. A theocracy is a government that is ruled by God. A theocracy. So, so what we see here in First Chronicles 16 is essentially the, their 4th of July. And when we celebrate the 4th of July, uh, we do so very patriotically under the democratic rule of our USA Constitution. A beautiful document. Most nations around the world have renewed their constitutions many times over. We still have ours for over 200, well over 200 years now. When we celebrate the 4th of July, it's done under the democratic rule of the Constitution. However, because this is a theocracy, not a democracy. What we see here in 1 Chronicles 16 is a theocracy. They are celebrating very patriotically as well, under the rule of of God Almighty under the law of the Old Testament. And so they, here they have dancing, they have music, they have food. But please understand this is not a church service, this is a civic celebration. They're Fourth of July. And they have all the elements of nationalism here. I could just imagine these men wearing their MEGA hats. Make Israel great again. <laughs> And they have all the contents as well, not only of nationalism, but of their faith, their religion, because they live in a theocracy. In fact, it's a monarchial theocracy. God rules, but he's using a king on a throne, a monarch, to carry out his rules. And notice here that David's administration then hands out bread, pieces of meat, and raisin cake as part of the celebration for all the adults who are there. And then he calls on the Levite priest, verse 4, to invoke the presence of God, to invite God, God, come and meet with us here, because we are celebrating this nation you gave to us. In fact, we are celebrating you as our leader. And then they recognize God's actions with thanksgiving. They simply praise him and say, thank you, Lord. And then they honor God with praise, namely with music. And there you see in verses 5 and 6 that they come together and they they put together an 11-piece orchestra and choir. Asaph is the leader of this orchestra. Asaph, you'll recall, is one of the psalm writers. If you look through the psalms, you'll find about a dozen psalms written by Asaph. Here he is the conductor. And then David provides to them a song. King David, the psalm writer, the songwriter, the lyricist, provides a song. In fact, in many of your copies of the scriptures, at the very top it will read something like David's Song of Thanksgiving, and that's exactly what it is. It's a rather long song. It extends from chapter 16, verse 8, all the way to verse 36. And in fact, if you're a student of the scriptures and reading through the Psalms, you'll notice that parts of this Psalm here are recorded in various other Psalms as well. And notice that the Psalm, this song, begins the first four verses with a call for God's children to praise God. This is how it reads. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Well, this morning, I want to spend a little time Just a one solitary verse here. Verse 10. In fact, just part of verse 10. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And I want to draw your attention to three reasons why you can be joyful. Three reasons out of this one sentence here as to why you can be joyful based on the writings of John Jay. Three reasons why this year you can be joyful. But before I even say that, let, let me just emphasize this. Again, it says that the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And that is to say, if you put it in the reverse, that those who do not seek the Lord should not count on being joyful. And neither can they be joyful. It says here that those who seek the Lord can rejoice. But if you do seek God, You should be joyful. You should be joy-filled. You should rejoice. Uh, Keep in mind that joy is not happiness. Happiness is something external. Joy is an inner delight. Joy is a thrill that is in your soul that is expressed externally. But it begins deep inside and it comes out. That's joy. And for many people, this phrase here, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, is a rather troubling statement because for many people they believe the exact opposite in fact they believe that the last thing that's ever going to bring them any joy is to go to church or to have a conversation about God or to say I need to follow Jesus in fact if you want to end the conversation very quickly just say hey you want to come to church on Sunday with me in most cases they'll say oh look at the time I think my mother's calling me People believe quite the opposite. Let me say this as well. Besides the fact that people feel that church is prudish, that church is glum and sullen, maybe even miserable, they believe that the world is what gives to us our pleasures, that we are going to find our pleasure in the world. And and granted, the world can give us many pleasures. No, No doubt about it. Many, many pleasures. But notice that these pleasures that the world offers, of all those pleasures, very few of them ever address the heart. They very seldom give attention to the heart, to the soul of man. They deal more maybe with the imagination or with the senses. Your sense of touch, your sense of taste, sight, hearing, smell. But very few of those pleasures actually include the inner person, the heart. And and so these pleasures do come, and they do put a smile on our face, but they leave your heart starving. Your heart starves, your soul is hungry, which, my friends, leads to sorrow, and for many people, eventually, depression. Because the heart is being ignored. It is the pursuit of Jesus Christ... It is in the pursuit of Jesus Christ that the inner person will find relief, will find rest, will find satisfaction and joy. If you do not feed the heart, you will not be satisfied. You will not find joy. You will not find relief. You will not find rest. You will have, however, temporary smiles. That's nice, but it doesn't last. It doesn't fill. Now notice something else before I get into those three points. Notice here that joy is not listed for those people who have attained a certain spiritual maturity, a certain level of spirituality. Notice here it says that the joyful person is the one who seeks the Lord. Not even the one who finds the Lord, but rather the one who is seeking after the Lord. That person can rejoice. That person can be joy-filled. And here then are the three reasons. They're brief, but three nonetheless. Three reasons for joy. You have reason to be joyful, my friend. If you seek the Lord, because one, it is evidence that God's grace is working in you. If you are seeking the Lord, you have reason to rejoice because there is the evidence that God's grace is working in you. Because no one will or can seek God or know Him or enjoy or even serve God unless God draws them first. You. By your own nature, you will be repulsed by God, it'll be like water and vinegar. Our natures do not want God. We want the things of God. But we do not want God. If you're looking for God, it's because God is drawing you to him. Look at what Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12 read. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And here Paul uses it to explain our condition. It says, there is no one righteous. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous. And many of us will say, well, I agree with that. Not even one. Oh, not even one. Well, it's a little bit harder for some people to accept, but that is what the scriptures say. No one righteous, not even one. Look at verse 11. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That means not even me. And we call that, in theological terms, depravity. Depravity. We are depraved. The scriptures go on to this, uh, tell us that depravity means that we are spiritually dead. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, it says just that. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins of your life. That's depravity. And just like a dead person cannot get up out of his coffin and pursue after his family, so we, spiritually dead, cannot pursue God unless God enables us. So if you are seeking God, thank him, be joyful, because it is a sign of God's grace working in you. Here's number two. Those who persevere in their pursuit of God will find him. You have reason to be joyful, because if you persevere in your pursuit of God, listen, you will find God. And Jesus Christ said in Matthew 7, 7, Seek and you will knock and the door will be opened to you. And here, my friends, is a reason for us to rejoice. There is no other pursuit in life that guarantees you success. In fact, much of life is like panhandling for gold isn 't it you maybe you 'll find some, maybe you won 't. But here, Jesus Christ guarantees success jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says "You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart guaranteed one hundred percent sure." Psalm 126.6 says, He who goes out weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I'll give you another one. Matthew 5.6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteous, righteousness, for they will be filled. You see, if you see God, if you see Christ with all your heart, you will find him. Let me give you quickly three rules on how to seek him. Rule number one, seek God on his terms, not yours. You want God's blessings? Seek him on his terms. You want to know God? Seek him on his terms. Number two, seek God according to how he has revealed himself. This is how God has revealed himself, in his word. In his word. Don't rely on dreams and visions. On his word, rely on his word To understand who God is. Seek him on his terms. Seek him according to how he has revealed himself in his word. And third, seek God, not yourself. Seek him. Don't seek yourself through him. Seek God. And here's a third reason why you can rejoice. One is because it's evidence that God's grace is in you. Number two, rejoice because you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. And here's number three. When you find him, you will be satisfied. (laughs) When you find Christ, when you find God, you will be satisfied. You will not be lacking in reason for joy. We all know how success is so fleeting, isn't it? It's here today and possibly gone tomorrow. Uh, Wealth is rather empty, fame is disruptive, pleasure is short-lived. And what I find interesting about all those pleasures that the world offers, all those successes that the world offers, is that getting there can be so hard, so frustrating, so disappointing, (coughs) right? And then when we finally find it, when we finally have that success, we are twice over disappointed, It's never exactly what we thought it would be. Meanwhile, in Christ, it is not only what we thought it would be, it's even far more than we could ever imagine. Everything else falls short of satisfying, but it is impossible to adequately describe what God will do for your soul. It is impossible for me to stand here and be able to adequately tell you everything God will do for you. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's beyond my ability to relay to you the riches of God to you. We struggle to fathom it. We struggle to understand God. You know, the scriptures teach us that God blesses us again and again and again. But there's, there's this principle in the scriptures that says the now but not yet. The now but not yet. These truths are now yours, but not yet. And and that really bothers us because we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time wondering why the not yet, and that we forget the now. I'll give you an example. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are already seated in the presence of God. And yet you're sitting here, the now, but not yet. Meaning that our salvation is, Our position in God is now complete, so much so that you're already there. Your name is inscribed. It's not going to change. But you still have to finish out your life here. That will come. But it's good. It's said. It's done. My friends, don't forget the not yet. It's coming. It's coming. One day, the not yet will be your now as well. It's hard for us to imagine all that God promises and will do, how he will satisfy you. In closing, let me just say this, one last portion of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Keep this in your heart this week. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 reads this way. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, Mind has not conceived the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Your eyes have not yet seen it. Your ears have not yet heard it. Your mind cannot conceive it. What God has prepared for those who love Him. Reasons to be joyful? If you're seeking God, it's evidence of His grace. You are guaranteed to find Him if you pursue Him with all your heart. And when you do find Him, you will be satisfied. And while we seek Him, we have reason to rejoice. Let all those who are under the hearing of my voice seek Him. He is not far from you. And he invites you to look for him, pursue him, seek him. God receives sinners. That's right. God receives those who have opposed him. And let me remind you, seek him while he can still be found. Let me pray. My Lord and my God, our Lord, our God, we thank you for making yourself available to us. And for giving us reason to be filled with joy, even though life can be challenging. Even though things often do not go in the way that we wanted or expected. Thank you, Lord, that you are on our side. And with our eyes on you, we will be satisfied. Amen.